Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen Haupt, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jennifer, Jennifer Roback Morse. Is that your middle? Is that the middle name there? Roback, okay. right. I want to make sure I said it right. <laughs> um, and we're going to be talking today about the sexual revolution and understanding and responding to that. So welcome so much, Dr. Morse, for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Colleen. I'm getting closer and closer with Human Life International these days, just keep encountering you guys in various a really good and positive environment. So um, I'm glad to help you out here. Oh, thank you so much for being on. It's great to have. I love having guests on this episode, on our podcast. It's so much fun to connect with all these different pro-lifers from around yeah. the world. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's just jump right in. You founded the Ruth Institute. Can you just talk a little bit about what motivated you to join this movement in the first place and then why you founded the Ruth Institute? <laughs> well, a little background for our listeners. Well, that, so that goes back to 1991, I guess you'd say, when we had two children within six months' time. Um, we adopted a little boy from a Romanian orphanage um, who was two and a half years old when he arrived. And then six months later, we gave birth to a baby girl. Um, and so we, so we had an adopted child and a birth child and actually, people there are people in front front royal who know my kids because they lived there at one time, you know. Um, but and and actually, I was up at George Mason University when all that went down. That's when I was still teaching up there, teaching economics and everything. And you know, I thought I was going to be a typical career woman, pop the kids back into daycare as soon as I had them, and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, the whole infertility experience jettisoned that whole line of thought, you know, of course. But anyway, having these two kids so close together, it made it very, very clear, Colleen, that kids need their parents, you know, because our little boy had so much to deal with. And all the other kids who arrived from Eastern Europe around that same time, there was a big batch of them, you know, because a lot of people were adopting from Eastern Europe, Ukraine and, and um, Romania and, and, and Russia and places like that. And that was happening. And none of us knew what we were getting into. But all the children had the same kinds of problems that were born from profound neglect. And so what that tells you is, my golly, kids need their parents, right? I mean, kids really need their parents. You know, this is not, this is not a, um, something negotiable. And so for a number of years, I was preoccupied with, you know, really dealing with my kids. Eventually, I left teaching. Um, I had a tenured position at George Mason. And I don't know how much you know about academic life, but if you leave a tenured position, you might as well slit your throat because you're basically unemployable for the rest of your life. <laughs> but, but I never looked back, you know, it's like, okay, we got to do what we got to do. And I, I had research positions and things like that. But that initial experience made it clear to me that, you know, number one, as I said, kids need their parents. And therefore, that places constraints on what adults get to do and not do in their lives, you know. And I had been always motivated by libertarianism. And, you know, if you leave people alone, the free market will work everything out. It will all come out in the end, invisible hand, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, there's no invisible hand that raises kids. Okay, let's just be clear about that. You know, I mean, that could go off the rails any number of ways, right? Um, and just doing what you feel like is not a guarantee of anything. So, you know, that was a period of time when I was really rethinking a lot of stuff. And what ended up happening, Colleen, is I ended up, really using my training as an economist to think systematically about the family and the kind of long-term ripple effects uh, that would follow from changing policies surrounding the family in some of the ways that we've done. And, and then the more you start studying that, the more you realize, oh my gosh, we've been systematically dismantling the family for a long time and the damage is really severe. So I started writing about it in a serious way. My first book was in 2001. It was called Love and Economics. It was really about motherhood 
Um, and I still, again, why mom, why women should feel okay about staying home with their families and why they could start a family sometime before menopause, you know, and it would be okay. They wouldn't have to be scared. And, you know, that's what I was thinking about in those days because I was still trying to teach and all that stuff. But, um, <clears throat> but over time, I started to see more and more profound problems. And of course, in 2001, nobody was even thinking about gay marriage or transgenderism or, or um, uh, third party reproduction. You know, I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was worried about divorce and too much daycare. You know, that, that's what I was worried about. Uh, which almost sounds charming in the in retrospect, but but all of it all of it is important. You know the bonds between the mother and the child, the bonds between the husband and the wife, the mother and the father. All of that is profoundly important. And um, so by 2008, the kids were getting old enough that I didn't have to be you know taking care of them 100. percent And I was looking around for something else to do, and decided that the thing to do was to start my own think tank. Um, and so that's what we did in 2008. And we've been involved in various aspects of, of family policy, uh, not so much from a we go to the state capitol lobby kind of perspective, but more from gathering information, analyzing stuff, giving people good arguments, um, and, and helping helping people really understand what's at stake in some of these debates. So that's that's the Ruth Institute, I would say, in a nutshell. Kids need their parents. Therefore, grownups need to behave. Bottom line right there. Yeah, definitely. Why did you name it the Ruth Institute, actually? Just well, you know, I was looking around. I wanted it to have like a patron. I didn't want it to be the Family Institute or something like that. I wanted it to, to there to be a person, you know. Um, and I, I already knew by 2008, I already knew that I wanted it to be interfaith because I knew I could see that there was plenty of um, support across the various faith traditions for this. And so, you know, it couldn't be anything too uber Catholic, you know, because uh, I didn't want to spook people. Um, and, and one day it just came to me, you know, Ruth, Ruth of the Bible, um, because she's putting family first and God and family first, really, um, and, and family and fidelity and all of those kind of things. And, and plus, my mom's name is Ruth. So all of that kind of fit together. And I must say, Ruth has worked very well for us because everybody has good vibes about Ruth. I've never heard anybody say, Ruth, love. you know, I mean, Jewish people love her. Mormons love her. Every, everybody loves Ruth, you know, so. Um, you gotta love a good biblical love story, too. Like, <laughs> you know, you know, exactly, exactly. You know, she didn't kill anybody like some um, biblical heroines have done and stuff, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that, yeah. That's, where, that's where Ruth comes from. Well, oh, that's beautiful. I love that story of Ruth and Boaz. It's just yeah. such a great story. Yeah. And then, so we were going to talk today about responding to the sexual revolution. Right. And I was watching one of your talks online and you were talking about the three big ideas that kind of mm -hmm. came out of it. And I believe it was contraception, divorce, and gender ideology. That's right. I believe. That's so can right. you just talk a little bit about those three and why as like we need to be able to respond to those as pro-lifers and as Catholics? Right, right, right. right. Well, I, I lay it all out in the book, The Sexual State. Okay. And I originally developed that three-part uh, typology, I guess you'd say, um, in debating the whole question of the definition of marriage. Because from about 2008 to about 2013, I was out and about debating gay marriage at law schools and other places on a regular basis, you know. And a lot of times I'd show up and I'd be the only person on the campus. <laughs> <laughs> that agreed with me. There'd be like the three kids from the Federalist Society who invited me and that's it. You know, everybody else was, you know, 100% convinced that gay marriage is the right thing. 
but and, and I figured out in the course of that that in their minds they had already redefined marriage. See, they had already defined marriage as being essentially sterile, right? That there's no necessary connection between sex and babies, right? Well, that's the contraceptive ideology right there. And you all at Human Life International have been stalwarts on that point, understanding that to be pro-life is to be extremely concerned, not just about abortion, but also about contraception and the contraceptive ideology that really feeds into abortion, you know. It's the feeder system <laughs> um, for abortion. But, but the idea that sex should be separated from babies, right, that is a very powerful idea. And everybody I was seeing on these law school campuses had already hadn't thought about that in 10 years, right? You know, they never thought about it. It's like, oh, that's so obvious, you know, that, that you get to have an active sex life without ever worrying about a baby, you know. That's the way people think. So you go in and say, you know, we need to have a, a robust institution of marriage to attach children to their parents, and people don't know what you're talking about, you know. Um, so the contraceptive ideology is a big, is a big part of it. It's a good society should separate sex from babies, right? That's what they think. Um, the the second part of it is that both sex and babies, both sex and babies, can be and should be separated from marriage. There doesn't need to be any connection to marriage. Now, why is that? What does that mean? That means we've already decided that kids don't really need their parents. Say, so, you know, I'm there talking to these, talking to these students, you know, like, what's going to happen to children and their parents? And, well, who cares? You know, kids have been without their parents for a long time, whether it's single parents or active divorce. And so when we at the Ruth Institute talk about the divorce ideology, we include not only divorce, but also single parenthood whether by choice or by misfortune, you know, because some people choose are now making a decision. I'm going to have a kid without getting married and it's fine. And there are other people who would much rather have been married and would much rather have not had this situation, but there they are. They don't want an abortion. They want to have their baby. So what, what, whatever it is, that's part of the divorce ideology. And we also include under it um, the whole idea of sperm and egg gamete donation purchases. Okay, and, and what all those things have in common is that the child is, is separated from one or both of their parents, right? And not because of some unfortunate tragedy, as would happen if you have adoption, you know, but because somebody chose, you know, somebody decided that the kids will be fine. Um, and and that's, the, that's the underlying big lie, I would say, of the divorce ideology. The kids will be fine. Kids are resilient. Have you ever heard that? Kids are resilient. You know, the kids will be fine. They'll be better off if their parents are happy. The kids will be happy. You know, well, anyway, there's another whole story about that, that, that um, seeing, out, well, I'll just tell it. Now, when I was debating gay marriage, I finally figured out that that was the key to getting through to at least some of the students. Because what I would do is I would go in, I would say, you know, here we are. Uh, we're debating a new definition of marriage. We're going to redefine marriage to make it no longer the union of a man and a woman. Well, we, we redefined marriage earlier to make it no longer a permanent union. Um, that's called no-fault divorce. And people were told, we have a few studies that say the kids are going to be fine. How does my divorce affect your marriage? Um, the state has no interest in this. You know, all this type of stuff was said. 
Um, but we now know that every one of those things was not true. You know, that kids do need their parents, that the kids aren't really fine. Well, now I'm looking out in that audience of 20 something law students, right? And they're all like, because they know, they know that that was a lie, you know? And so I, I would, would frequently have somebody come, it wasn't unusual to have somebody come up to me and say afterwards, you know, you gave me something to think about, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to them all hating me, right? Well, and that's the generation that grew up with like their parents divorced or their aunts and uncles divorced or their friends' parents divorced. Like, I mean, that was, they're a little bit older than I am, but like, that's definitely what I saw growing up was that you see it in all of like your parents' generation. There's so much divorce that goes on. And so I can see how that would be really impactful to them to think of it that way. Oh, I've seen my friends be hurt by this. How could gay marriage then hurt somebody else? Well, it opens the question, see, because what they had already taken for granted was the idea that the kids will be fine, you know, that you could have a same-sex marriage and that, and somehow they acquire children and the kids will be fine. Any idiot knows that the two par- the two people in that couple cannot both be the parent. Every child is a stepchild in a sense um, in a in a same-sex marriage. So a same-sex, same-sex couple, every child is going to be a stepchild in some way. And so to get in front of the young people, the idea that there's that, that might be a problem, um, that's that's what that line of argument really did. But but it exposed the fact to me as I was talking about it, you know, that people have already redefined marriage to be a childless union, and they've already redefined childhood to be something that is not particularly needy of parents. You know that the kids, the, you can shuffle your shuffle your uh, relationships around as much as you want, you'll be fine. So now the third ideology is the gender ideology. And the gender ideology is basically saying that, that the sex of your sex partner doesn't matter because the sex, the sex of the body doesn't really matter very much. Um, and the early forms of feminism had said men and women are basically interchangeable. Uh, men and women are identical. If you see any differences between men and women, it's evidence prima facie of some kind of discrimination or injustice. So we need to wipe out all the differences between men and women. Well, if people have already bought that, you know, which most people in higher education and law school and so on have already bought the idea um, that there are no important differences between men and women, then the idea that there could be a problem with your choice of gender of your sex partner, you know, that, that doesn't even compute, doesn't even register, right? So, so the gender ideology is the thing that's most in people's faces today because that's that's morphed, you know, that that idea has. Um, has moved, right? It hasn't stayed with what the fem- early feminists were talking about. And in fact, the current versions of the gender ideology, were, which is transgenderism, saying the sex of the body that you were born with doesn't matter. You can reconstruct it if you want to. Um, and in fact, that could be good for you to try to do that. Um, that is in many ways in direct opposition to the old form of feminism, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of radical feminists who are really mad about transgenderism. You know, so it's kind of exposing an incoherence at the heart of the gender ideology. Um, and I think that it's necessary really to to go to the root of the thing and, and basically say it, it was mistaken from the beginning that the the idea that the sex of the body is insubstantial uh, and doesn't matter for anything important, that that's a big mistake, you know. And so that's what the that's what the that's how we analyze the gender ideology and how, how we look at it. Yeah, well, exactly, because men and women, they're equal in dignity, but they're different in 
like so many other ways. Like right. you keep the dignity the same, but then it's like, okay, men are going to be stronger. Women are going to be more emotional, but not like in a bad way, just like better at relating to people. Like it's just built into their roles as father and mother and how they're both going to be complementary right. in that way. And, and you can, and you don't have to get hysterical about sex roles and, and being rigid about sex roles. You know, there's plenty of room for people to be a woman in different ways and to be a man in different ways and so on and so forth. But you're still a woman. You're still a man, you know. Um, you know, even if you like to climb trees and you're a little girl, you're fine. You know, if you're a boy and you're bookish, you're fine. You're not, you're really a boy, you know. Um, and it, it's astonishing, really, how, um, you, you know, how gender stereotypes have reemerged in this in this most toxic way, you know, really a much more toxic way than they ever existed in the 1950s, believe me, you know, um, because nobody in the 1950s would butcher themselves in the way that people are are thinking they need to do now. And, and that's what's really tragic about the current round of the, of the gender ideology. But the, pro the problem has been there from the beginning, Colleen. And um, it's I think of it as a, as a Gnostic cult, right? Because it's saying, you know, as the early Gnostics did, that the, the, the physicality of human existence is not only unimportant, it's it's negative. It's something we, we need to transcend it. You know, we need to get past it and be more spiritual and, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and how you feel is who you are, not who your physical body is. Like there's that kind of idea too of like your emotions and what you think, something that's very abstract and more spiritual in a way is what defines you, not also your physical components. Like we're body soul composites. It's both together. It's not one or the other. That's right. That's right. And the, you know, the, the Thomistic teaching that a lot of us got from the, from the Baltimore catechism when we were little kids, you know, there's a question right there. It says, what is man? Well, man is a creature composed of body and soul made in the image and likeness of God. You know, if you've got that implanted in your brain, you're going to be safe from a lot of crazy stuff. You know, that's going to protect you from a lot of stuff, you know. Um, and, and people, as often happens, people have a tendency to go off the deep end and be either all physical or all mental. But, you know, Catholicism and traditional Christian values, you know, basically says it's a composite, like you said, and, and you, you can't. You don't want to cut yourself in half like that. Um, exactly. Yeah. And then how would you say, like, based off of those ideologies that you were, we were just discussing, how would you suggest that people can respond to those? Like, any, like, I don't know about arguments or, like, how we can, what are some practical ways that we can try to combat those ideas that are floating around in society? Well, I think I think the first thing that we really help people with at the Ruth Institute is we give people some clarity about what's going on. And I, I, I find that the th that three-part typology is helpful because it means you only have to master three big ideas. So, you know, some new crazy thing could come at you out of left field, but you can look at it and go, ah, there it is again. That's the gender ideology. Basic problem is, boom, the body matters, you know, or uh, something crazy will come up. Oh gosh, I don't know. It, 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 it it comes at you from all over the place. Kids actually do need their parents, you know, and, and so when people can recognize that, the children need the care and love of their parents. The children are dependent and they're meant to be dependent. There's nothing wrong with being dependent at six weeks old. That's a little young to be set off on your own in daycare, you know, uh, I'm just saying. Um, and, and, and when women drop their babies off at daycare because they have to go back to work, and she's crying, sobbing, and the baby's sobbing when that's going on. Hey, guys, that's okay. That's actually normal. That's okay. 
for you to feel like you want to be home with your baby. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You're fine. And that, that that's one where I think some college educated women now are seeing that. You know, I mean, I think there are a lot of there's some resistance to that aspect of feminism. But but if you look at the other aspects of the divorce ideology, it's so toxic because people get involved with somebody that's not going to be a suitable parent. And then they and then they they break up and then they got a new person and the new person is just as unsuitable. Plus, they have a child that's not really his. And so he's not committed to that child in the same way and so the the problems compound then you know so the problems that you see in the lower class um and the in the people who are not college educated you know the 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 social dysfunction has crept from the very poor up into the middle class and you guys see it at your pregnancy care centers you know when the people come in um their lives are in a lot of chaos often and to to some extent it's not their fault i mean the way I put it is it's not all your fault. Some of it may be your fault, but it's not all your fault because there's so much, you know, it's like we're walking around in a fog all the time because everything around us has been manipulated to make us think like to believe these ideologies. So you have to be very strong in your beliefs and be very aware of what's going on if you want to be able to respond to it. And a lot of people aren't necessarily aware. And so it's, they're very easily swayed in one way or another, and it's not always their fault. They've just never been educated in about those subjects in that way. And and, and you you asked what to do, you know, and how we combat it, and that that clarity that you're talking about, I think that's an absolutely essential first step because the sexual revolution is very seductive. You know, what they say sounds plausible and it sounds appealing, and and yet if you if you follow it, um, you're going to be sucked in you won't sit there with just the one point. You're gonna be kind of caught into the vortex um, of, of the whole package. Um, and, then it's, and then it's a lot harder to get out of it. So I just tell people, you can't, you can't make nice with this thing. You can't pussyfoot around with it and think you're gonna, <laughs> that you're gonna escape it somehow. You know, I, that, that's probably not gonna happen. And I actually had a question based yeah. off of, again, the talk I was watching online. In it, you mentioned that pedophilia was baked into the sexual revolution. Can you just talk about that briefly about why you said that? And was that something that was there at the beginning or was it just there in like as like a little seed that has grown into something? Like, was that something that people who were starting the sexual revolution wanted or was it just the natural consequence of these ideologies? It was, it was a logical consequence of what they were doing. And in fact, I'm not aware of, of, the, of the basic founders of the sexual revolution with the possible exception of Alfred Kinsey. I don't think they were pedophiles themselves. Some people think Kinsey was. Um, we know for sure that he enabled pedophilia because he had this one guy that he collected data who brought him data about children having orgasms and stuff. That guy should have been locked up and reported. And Kinsey didn't. Kinsey felt sorry for him. But but with with a possible exception of Kinsey, the early founders of the sexual revolution, as far as I know, were not pedophiles themselves. But what they wanted was a system that uh, that wiped away all the old sexual taboos. And if you wipe away the old sexual taboos, well, what do you do? Well, you no longer protect the interests of children, right? Because that's what those taboos did. And so what you have to do is to redefine childhood, right? And this is where the idea comes from that children, um, children, their idea, right? and this they all had, Kinsey has this idea, um, Marcuse has this idea, 
um, Shulamith Firestone. I don't know that she was explicit about it, but, but she had this idea. Um, Wilhelm Reich, all these people from the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, they had the idea that children are sexual beings and they need to have the freedom to explore their sexuality. Most of these people thought what they were going to do is explore it with other kids, right? So you shouldn't be coming down too hard on teenagers fooling around and their parents should leave them alone. Their parents were making them uptight, so on and so forth. So what they didn't really think about was the fact, number one, you're going to attract pedophiles. You start talking like that. You yourself may not be a pedophile, but the pedophiles are going to you know, be drawn like flies, right? Um, but the second thing is you have to redefine what it means to be a good parent. You have to redefine what it means to be a child, right? The idea that children need to be protected by their parents from predation. The sexual revolution can't really accommodate that very well, you know, um, because, you know, maybe the child wants it, you know, maybe, maybe it's a loving relationship, you know, this kind of thing. And so honestly, if you really, if you think about this template that these guys had, I mean, uh, Reich thought that society should reorganize itself so that children could have their own apartments and their own place to live so that they could have sex without their parents knowing or without their parents disapproving. So if you look at where we are today, if you look at what the welfare system does to people, if you look at now the state taking kids away from parents who are not sufficiently supportive of their trans identity, right? If you look at the way in which the state um, has required uh, abortion and contraception to be given to minors without their parents' knowledge, see, that's been going on a long time, right? People are freaked out over the trans medicine happening without, without parental knowledge. Abortion and contraception has been going on a long time without parental knowledge. All of that flows from the idea that children are sexual beings with sexual rights, the rights to sexual pleasure. Parents and parents are a problem, see. And whereas we at the Ruth Institute, we believe children have rights. They have a right to their parents. They have a right to be loved by their parents. They have a right to be protected by their parents. They have a right to know who their parents are you know, and be in relationship with them. That's what we think of as children's rights, you know. Well, and it makes sense that if you're having like a contraceptive mentality and you're basically separating children from parents and parents in a loving relationship and loving, committed relationship for life, it makes sense that then these children, like, you don't really know what to do with that other than make them sexual human beings who then need to follow in those footsteps. There's no real natural built-in bond there that, like, ideological bond that, there is, and if you look at reality the way it's supposed to be, I don't know right. if that makes sense. But. No, it makes total sense. What you're saying makes sense because the ideology uh, finds parental bonds, the child-parent bond, to be inconvenient. See, mm -hmm. that, that bonding between the mother and the child is inconvenient for the ideology. So it's being, um, they're trying to talk people out of it. Right. And to, and, and that, that's why the whole daycare thing is actually kind of important because it's, We've had really full generations, multiple generations now, decades worth of women being told that your attachment to your child is not particularly significant, right? And that you really should leave the kid in daycare so you can go back to the law office and, and do title closings and house closings and title searches. You know, that's much more meaningful, right? I mean, that takes a lot of propaganda to convince people of that, right? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a child. Um, and so the, the culture we've created now 
is a is a predator's paradise, Colleen. There's just no getting around it. It is a paradise for predators. You know, Jeffrey Epstein, you know who I'm talking about? Okay, the, the notorious pedophile. Some of his victims, when they were talking about, you know, how they were recruited and what happened and stuff, what happened to them and stuff like that, they reported the fact that Jeffrey Epstein's recruiters or pimps or whatever you want to call them, they targeted girls from broken families. They targeted girls who were in foster care. They targeted girls who didn't have a dad to protect them. So there you have the sexual revolution going full circle of explicitly uh, making explicit what was kind of tacit before that the, that these kids who don't have strong bonds with their parents they're now vulnerable to to the predatory behavior and that too in a way was baked in from the beginning although nobody said hey i have an idea let's make little kids vulnerable to sex abuse no nobody talked like that but it's a logical consequence of what you know we, one step led to the other well, it shows why it's so important to understand ideologies, because when you understand what an ideology is saying at its core, you can figure out what the logical conclusion is going to be. And if you don't have that kind of, you're not on that wavelength, then you just hear the first thing and you're like, I agree with this point, maybe. And you don't think about all the repercussions. Like, it's a lot easier to convince people of a small step than to convince them of a large step down the line. And so if you're that's why it's so important to realize what those first ideologies, what those small steps were saying, because now we're looking at the domino effect years later. Right, right. And, so. and I must say, that's one of the ways that my economics training really helped me, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's how we're trained to think. You know, if you change the price of eggs, what will happen? <laughs> you know, what will happen all over the economy? You know, that kind of thing. You're used to thinking like that. And I must say, Colleen, when I was out and about debating gay marriage, looking back on it, it's really astonishing how narrow the debate really was. Right. No one wanted to look at those kinds of things. Right. Everybody. The only thing we were allowed to talk about was, is this going to make gay people feel good? How is this going to affect gay people right now and their feelings? That's that was, you know, that was the conversation. And to say, well, gee, it might have these further effects. You're you're going to redefine marriage. It's going to redefine it for everyone. And, you know, if, if the marriage isn't a gender based institution anymore. You're going to have to change the birth certificates. You're going to have to change the marriage licenses and degender those documents. You know, well, now you're sitting duck for transgenderism. You know, that that's right. I mean, that's setting the stage for the next phase. And transgenderism really is the next phase of the gender ideology part of what uh, of what gay marriage did. Gay marriage moved the ball forward on all three of those ideological fronts. Thing. And then the trans, and then the trans people, the tr what the trans people did, what, and I don't, I'm not honestly, I'm not convinced it was the trans people themselves. But what the, whoever's in charge of all this business, I don't know who that is. Whoever's in charge of all this business, they had all of this money at the human rights campaign. They had all of this infrastructure. They had all of this ability to cancel people. Um, all of these, you know, people had kind of gotten used to the idea that there are certain things you're not allowed to say. Uh, and a mob could come and basically take your job away from you because you gave a thousand dollars to Prop A. You know that kind of stuff. People were already primed for all of that. Gay marriage led the way for all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. And then each generation too is getting like desensitized. Like you have yeah. one generation that gets desensitized through divorce, and then the next one gets desensitized through 
a lot of single parent homes because women were having children like great that they're keeping their children but then these children are growing up with a single mom or a single dad and then like the next generation is getting normalized with gay marriage and now you have the transgender like it just it keeps increasing and people are getting what someone in the 50s would have seen as extreme someone right now isn't going to necessarily see that way because there's been 60 years of other ideologies Progressive. And propaganda, nonstop propaganda. You know, I think that's that's another point I'd like to leave with your listeners is, is yeah. to be on the lookout for propaganda because each one of these three ideologies is incorrect, factually incorrect, right? I mean, sex actually makes babies. I, I hope I don't have to explain that to your followers, right? Um, one time I said that in a debate, Colleen, I said that, <laughs> seriously, I said, sex makes babies. And my debate opponent said, no, it doesn't. Oh, really? What do you mean? And she said, unprotected sex makes babies. Oh. That's how they think. See, that's how they think. But anyway, um, if you try to build society around the idea that sex makes babies, reality will support you in this, right? Because the the connection is going to become obvious. And and same with men and women being different. Same with kids needing their parents. Reality is going to reinforce that. But if you're trying to create a society where kids don't need their parents and men and women really have no substantial differences and sex and babies are completely disconnected. If you're trying to do all that, you're going to have to pr- provide a lot of propaganda uh, and you're going to need a lot of force to kind of tamp down all the evidence, right? And, and so I would tell people, listen, you guys, just be on the lookout or instances where somebody is manipulating you, where somebody's either diverting your attention from something important, right? Or trying to normalize something that's not normal, uh, right? It's, so you see these, these human interest stories uh, about women who've decided to be childless. You know, why do we need stories about that? Why is this news? Yeah. Right? I mean, they've been talking like that. That's a socially acceptable choice has been for decades. Why does anyone need to talk about that? propaganda you know it's to is to is to you know there might be somebody waking up someday thinking that they want to get married and have kids we got to do something about that <laughs> crazy. They're just working against nature and so exactly. they do a lot of propaganda to try to turn that natural train around <laughs> and exactly exactly and and that also colleen that's the marker of a totalitarian ideology mm-hmm. totalitarians everyone you can think of every totalitarian ideology you can think of they're at war with human nature. Some way or another, they're at war with human nature. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really great conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. And I, I certainly wish, wish Human Life International all the very best in everything that you're doing. You guys are doing great work and, and you're a very important light in the uh, pro-life firmament as far as I'm concerned. Thank you so much. And also to all of our listeners, please like, follow, subscribe, drop some ideas in the comments for topics for future podcasts if you'd like, and keep on living the culture of life. Thank you and God bless.